Hello and welcome to Living a Culture of Life podcast by Human Life International. I'm your host, Colleen, and I'm joined today by Annalie McGraw. Welcome. Thank you, Colleen. It's wonderful to have you here today. It's great to be back. And today, we're going to be talking about a solution to a dilemma faced in today's world, where you have this culture where young people don't necessarily see healthy relationships modeled for them. What do you, how do you teach children about chastity and healthy relationships when they're not seeing it reflected in today's society? And so, Annalie, you have a very unique solution to this. Can you <laughs> talk about it for our listeners about how classic movies can be a wonderful way to introduce young people to the beauty of healthy relationships and chastity? I'll sure try, Colleen. It's based on the whole idea of St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle before him of the transcendent power of truth, goodness, and beauty, but beauty leading, beauty shining, and brilliantly drawing our hearts to truth and goodness. That's really what it is. It's it's, uh, taking all of that beautiful teaching from centuries over uh, right into today, 2023, with classic movie storytelling. And so it's really the beauty of storytelling that you start with. And then you say, what is it about these stories? And the first thing you were saying to me when we were talking was, look at the beauty of these images. And so in our study guides and in the movies themselves, you just encounter beauty. And you and that draws you in. You can kind of dispel the darkness. You don't have to have this dry seminar in how bad everything is. <laughs> That's so true because it's so easy to present chastity and relationships as don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And instead, the only reason we have those no's is because we're saying yes to something greater, something more beautiful. It's that quote from JP2 that says that, um, I think it was was talking about pornography, I believe. And the problem is that not that it says too much, shows too much about sex, but that it shows too little. And it's the same the idea here is that you're showing them the greatness of a healthy relationship that sex is a part of, but isn't shown explicitly because a film screen is not the appropriate place for that. You're showing exactly. the, everything else about the relationship. You mentioned your study guides. So you put together study guides that follow classic films, I believe, in different themes and then yes. help guide the listener or guide the viewers yes. to yes. certain concepts. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, My first goal in the study guides was to put together um, a body of teaching that would help those who were doing following the study guide. They would become the experts in classic movies that I have become over years of love and study. And that's what's needed. They need to have that background in the history, in the celebration of the performances. We only choose the greatest of the films that all, almost always have Academy Award, certainly nominees um, in play, almost all of them. And so it's just a kind of no-brainer that you pull together 
this information and then you let the weight of the film itself do the teaching. You don't have to be an expert in Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or even classic movie history. You just need to be there to provide this opportunity. And what are you defining as classic movies? Because I know some people will look at movies from the 80s and say this is a classic. So No what... way. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yes. what actual era you're talking yes. about? With uh, fortunately, it is a pretty clearly defined era, whether people uh, want it to be or not. <laughs> but uh, it does start um, in the year of the production code being operational, which is 1934. Um, the code was actually promulgated by Father Daniel Lord, wonderful storyteller in his own right that many parents and grandparents know his saints stories for boys and girls of an earlier time. Father Daniel Lord was a brilliant, wonderful priest who knew theater and knew storytelling and uh, he was the one who developed the code, and it was actually operational in 1934, and this goes with the studio system that was operating over the decades, so you usually think of the golden era as being the mid-30s to about the mid-60s. That checks out because then you have the sexual revolution, which yes. is going to change how what themes are being shown in movies. Yes. So when did you first realize that classic movies could be a really good way to teach young people and teens about relationships? What brought you to this point? I know that you deal with other ideas besides relationships in your study guides, but since we're talking specifically about relationships today, what, what led to that? It was the movie Bride and Prejudice with Greer Garson and, and Sir Lawrence Olivier. And I had a really bad cold, and my son Tom, uh, who now has college-age kids of his own and beyond, and he was in high school, and he brought home that, which I'd seen several times, and I maybe it was because I was so sick with this cold or something, but I just saw the whole Jane Austen model of men and women relationships and being in love. And I just saw this unfolding. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I would love to take the classic movies that do this the best mm -hmm. and create study guides. I just write it was just a flash right with that with that film there's something and, different about seeing it unfold on a movie screen i love yes. jane austen i love reading the books like i love the, i love reading but there is something different and it captures you in a different way when you see yes. two people actually living it out instead of just reading about it there's the visual i think it's what you're talking about the beauty it's a different type of beauty and it's drawing you in in a different way and it's helping form imaginations to be able to recognize healthy relationships when they see them. And I think that's the crux of this is that the classic films are models that people can visually see these healthy relationships right. being played out in such a way that then they can envision that for their own lives. How do I want to live out this relationship? How do I recognize when a man is respecting me? How do I know what love really is? Uh, I would say the ABCs, which I kind of have worked out for maybe a future blog, um, accessibility, 
You don't have to go to a classical high school, although that would be a lovely thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. But maybe you don't have a classical high school in mm-hmm. your uh, community or a great uh, classical liberal arts college or university. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just accessible for all of our kids. Mm-hmm. And also sharing with other families and students that haven't been given a strong background in the natural law mm-hmm. or in faith ways, faith-based ways of looking at life and all of these things. There's so many people today that we can serve mm-hmm. and help in our communities, the young people coming up with these films and uh, that's the accessibility but also as you've been saying the believability i mean we have a generation now that doesn't even really believe that they have a very good chance to find somebody that's going to commit to them much as they even may practice the faith Mm-hmm. and and have uh, maybe even a, a, a lovely circle mm-hmm. of friends and family. Uh, we live in a time in our culture where people are not optimistic in the subject area of love, romance, and marriage. Mm-hmm. And that's why these stories are absolutely pure gold. You have uh, a generation that's just cynical because they've seen 60 years of the repercussions of the sexual revolution. 60 years. And just seeing how much devastation. And even if people don't necessarily experience it within their own family, they may have had aunts or uncles who divorced. Exactly. Or friends that are going through bad relationships. And they just, you see the di- breakdown of marriage everywhere you look. And it's more rare to look and see really good, healthy relationships. And even if you see that one relationship, seeing a whole family that's living it out is even more rare to see parents who have remained faithful and their children remain faithful. And now they have grandchildren. Absolutely. And it should encourage anybody Mm -hmm. uh, who treasures the culture of life to know that this sentiment and longing is shared by people who don't believe in God, who, Mm -hmm. who support uh, things like same-sex marriage and abortion, mm-hmm. but whose hearts are made by God to long for true, committed love and virtue in relationships. I think it's- and this is all seen on Turner Classic Movies where we all love the Philadelphia story, <laughs> but we're a lot of us, including liberals, mm-hmm. not going to particularly care for a lot of the contemporary offerings that simply can't hold a candle to these classic films. I think it was Solzhenikin who said beauty will save the world. And I think this is an example of that, of these classic films are beautiful and they portray something true, good and beautiful. And they attract people, even people who don't necessarily believe in God. And it's a, it's a stepping stone on their way to God and their way to truth. Absolutely. So you said accessibility, believability. What's the C? Uh, compelling. Uh, which is basically it's, what we were. Yeah, which was what we were just saying. And and then you think of other C words. I always like to think of cultivation and community. All these 
lovely and character building. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just hands down. And we talked about uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which of course was the very first one that we did with a d- group of detention home kids. Mm-hmm. And this is all documented. Uh, we had a documentary on our website that people can go to mm-hmm. and and get the whole documentary of of how and why this type of teaching works so well but in there we talked about these kids that uh, were in this high security detention home and this was back in about 2000 Mm -hmm. and it was christmas time and they were all there just kind of stuck with no family and um and it was christmas and our wonder, my wonderful friend, Jane Clardy, we were working on this project in Danville, Virginia. It was the very beginnings of our project. Mm-hmm. And just we had that in the detention home because Jane was willing to try it. And she had great courage because she didn't really know the movies the way that let's say you and I do Mm -hmm. but she kind of took my word for it and she thought I'll just introduce this at Christmas time the kids are so lonely and listless Mm -hmm. so she showed it on this little beat up television in the corner of the room and at first they just couldn't stand it they they didn't know black and white they had never heard of jimmy stewart even mm-hmm. uh why are why is miss clardy showing us this thing this mm-hmm. black and white and they even threatened to pull out the vhs uh <laughs> out of the tv oh my goodness and she just begged them and she said would you give this a try will you please and they said, oh, okay, you know, it was sort of that. Mm-hmm. That's also written in the heart, right? If somebody really asks you for something, <clears throat> unless there's a darn good reason, maybe you'll let them have it. So they did, and they paid attention. And when it gets to the point in the film, when Jimmy Stewart's George Bailey jumps into the river to save clarence yes at the end that's what they were thinking they wanted to do they were so sad and when they saw what happened and they started saying things like this is the best movie we've ever (laughs) seen in our lives and they went on to see high noon and the man who knew too much and sounder we had a just a little film festival there with Jane and with this group of young people. And, but there was never anything like the breakthrough mm-hmm. with It's a Wonderful Life because it went from so negative mm-hmm. to uh, them just embracing the film and its values and its truths. So I said when I, we got the report on that, mm-hmm. I said, I will do this for the rest of my life to give to people like those young people a chance to know mm-hmm. that it is a wonderful life after all. Yes. That's beautiful. So you run groups, I believe for teens, you've like experienced groups of teens watching these movies and then yes. going through the study guide and having discussions yes. afterward and yes. having to write about them. What are some of the reactions that you've had from kids? Like, does this 
or from I say kids, teens, young adults, does it change the way they look at relationships or look at certain values in general? I would say that um, not at first. I would say that it uh, depends on uh, it, I definitely believe in exposing our young people to a series of films. Okay. Uh, and that's why I'm, I work so hard on the study guides mm -hmm. to generate a whole sense of many films to look at mm -hmm. and yet not, and yet being very selective all the same. And that makes sense because uh, if you mm -hmm. haven't grown up watching black and white movies, like that's a shift right there, a visual mm -hmm. shift. And then different mm -hmm. films are going to have different themes. They're going to resonate with yes. different people. So yes. going through a series means that you're getting used to, okay, this is how the humor works. This is, this is what's going on culturally. It's not because it's so different in some ways than what you're seeing on Netflix today. And that's then very good. Yes. As those movies progress, it strikes different chords with different students and changes them that way. So that's, that makes sense. That is absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> it, uh, there's different, as we all know, people are very different. And there is such a thing, which I've seen, I've seen it firsthand in students. Mm -hmm. um, some just have a greater potential moral mm -hmm. imagination than others. Mm -hmm. um, some are wounded and uh, they already kind of see the world in a very kind of skewed place. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, so uh, just for example, uh, some young men that I've seen, you know, they they just want to kind of have a kind of sick humor mm. or or sarcasm. Mm -hmm. um, when they're asked to speak and talk about the film, they may just fall back on a kind of a humorous dismissal of the film. Mm -hmm. So that, but that's the worst that it gets, you know. So we have to say in a certain way. If that's as bad as it gets with a group of high schoolers, mm -hmm. that some people just have a rotten sense of humor, <laughs> that's yeah. not so bad. And you've planted a seed at that point. You've shown them something that might change, yeah. affect their lives later on, even if they don't necessarily grasp it right there in the that's moment. That's right. Have and you seen a positive impact, well, though, on most of well, your students? Well, they're experiencing the reason I'm just thinking of this is that what you then see over time is a tremendous sensitivity and sensibility that some of the young people develop as they are seeing the different um, films. And so I've just seen groups of young people wrestle with these kinds of things, at, but it's part of the storytelling if you're going to have built into it discussion mm -hmm. and pressure for some people to speak up uh it's just part of what what you see mm -hmm. and so i've had a bird's eye view of a lot of this mm -hmm. but um what i have seen is that most of the young people they start seeing as you were alluding to colleen the different facets of a kind of philosophy of life itself that these films convey by virtue of 
having been made in the time in which they're made, Mm -hmm. the production code that guided that to some degree, but also the cultural social norms that were operating in the culture of that time. Mm -hmm. Um, This isn't something you ordinarily think of, Mm -hmm. but it is definitely in these movies. There is a way that there is an order of the world a moral order that is conveyed. Now, you mentioned the production code. So correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to try to give a little backstory for that if, for our listeners, but I could have the details wrong. I believe what happened is that movies being made in the 20s and the very early 30s didn't have any type of oversight. Studios were making movies that sometimes aired on the side of being risque. And so you had hometown theaters. You had, I believe, women's groups and parents yes. saying, how did, like you shouldn't have this in movies. We can't show this to our kids. Mm-hmm. So the film, the p- owners of not the studios, but of the actual theaters were taking the film reels and splicing out these scenes. Literally cutting them to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> and taping them back together to yes. be able to show them because yes. otherwise no yes. one would show up. Yes. And then the studio heads and the directors were saying, this is art. How dare you cut up art? And so then the people, like the people of America said, make us films that we can show without having to cut in pieces to be able to show to our children, I believe. Is that well, basically what... Well, in a general way, that's pretty pretty accurate. Um, the, the question was, how are we going to do this? And mm-hmm. I think that's where God's providence really is so clear mm-hmm. because uh, these movie moguls and these studio people didn't really know how they would do that either. I mean, how can you... Uh, make a story conform to the natural law. This is a theology and theological and philosophical standard. Mm -hmm. Um, So Father Lord did develop the code, but it always needed to have some way that it could actually be practically operational. And so it just seems like it just came into place providentially because in about 1933, the code was there, but nobody was paying attention to it. The films were more and more risque, difficult, and the censorship boards, as you said, were at work. And in Philadelphia, the, uh, the Archbishop of Philadelphia at the time simply said there was going to be a boycott of all Paramount movies that are coming out. And that was the beginning of the Legion of Decency. And so people actually made pledges. Uh, The people in the pews made the pledge that they wouldn't go to the movies. They would not patronize. So that was going on in 1933. And then uh, it wasn't just Philadelphia. It was, uh, remember again, that the uh, Catholic immigrants were populating these urban cities like Detroit and New York City. Mm -hmm. Chicago was a big place. So that's where these Legion of Decency groups formed and boycotts were either uh, talked about or they were actually taking place. And in the meantime, 
FDR uh, had become president um, in 1932. Mm -hmm. And from a secular governmental point of view, he was in strong agreement with the bishops. <laughs> Why is and, that? Uh, well, he just <clears throat> liked clean films. This shows you culturally and other ways that in a culture, mm -hmm. you have waves of agreement and convergence, even with people that are not necessarily conscious of fulfilling a, a God-centered approach to life. Mm -hmm. and A culture of life, a which culture is the of name life. of this podcast. Thank you, thank you. you. You need a culture that is in support of life, even if individuals within the culture don't always recognize that they're living out God's plan for their life. Thank you. And it's, it's based on that idea that a good movie is a good movie and, and common sense and sensibilities tell us this. And it told it to FDR and his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. And so they were very strong. And they said, if we don't, if we don't see something going on, we're going to do federal censorship. Really? And so the studios had a threat both from the federal government newly elected popular New Deal president and his, and the first lady. And they had the uh, Catholic churches in all the major <laughs> Eastern uh, cities up for doing something. And so what were they going to do? And then along came the idea of hiring um, a team of people who would be in an actual office called the Production Code Office. Okay. And this was formed in 1934. And the way it worked was that all of the studios had did submit and gladly submitted <laughs> at this particular point in history, gladly submitted their scripts ahead of time to the production code office. And so they were very sensitive, uh, aesthetically mm -hmm. oriented people. Maybe they were writers in their own right. They were thinkers and writers. Mm -hmm. And so they would come up even with recommendations if something was a little bit shady. Mm -hmm. Well, here's how you can, can show this. Uh, an example would be... Um, you know, that uh, somebody, a man and a woman are going to get together there. They're, uh, so they would just fade away from the scene um, with a fire in the fireplace or something, something like that. I that believe would show. I'm thinking of Johnny Belinda. There's a rape that yes. happens in that movie. Yes. And I believe the way they do it is that it happens off screen and you yes. see... I believe it's shadows on the wall. Yes. It's been a couple of years since I've seen it, yes. but they did it in such a way that the audience knows exactly what's happening, but they don't need to actually That's see right. the grotesque nature of that no. act. And, and you have just exactly said the words audience, and it was movies for a mass audience. So that um, what was seen on the screen was absolutely fundamental, and the dialogue could have some 
what they call double entendre or something like that, as long as it was discreet and and you know at a kind of witty level, mm-hmm. um, they could kind of pull that off. And uh, it wasn't the kind of culture that's here now, where our young people simply are exposed at very young ages. Uh, there was a definite sense in those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, all those decades of there being adults and children and teenagers. Well, I grew up on a lot of the older movies, and I remember Top Hat was one that was with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers from 1935, I want to say. Yes, yeah. And I, as a kid, I watched it. I loved it. I loved the song and dance, all of that. And then when I got older, there was just certain lines that I was like, oh, you're implying that so-and-so's like mother had an affair potentially or – Things that as a kid you don't grasp, but as an adult audience member, you're saying, oh, okay, there's a little backstory here that you're not fleshing out, but it's there's a little nod to it to help yes. inform the adults without Inf- giving exa- the kids giving exactly. kids ideas they shouldn't have. Exactly. Exactly. Correct. You said the code was already in place. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the code was? Because some people may not know anything about the code. So what exactly did the code lay out for movies that they were or were not allowed to show? Well, the code presented, uh, and you can absolutely Google it and look it up, and I recommend that to anyone anyone in the audience uh, to just be so informed as to this incredible cultural and moral force that was at the bottom of this great era of classic film. And what the code said was that we live in a world that has a moral order Mm -hmm. and that there is right and there is wrong and there is good and evil. And the most important thing that was said was that the side, the emotions of the audience will not be drawn to the side of crime wrongdoing, evil, or sin. So Father Lord was very conscious of how human emotions Mm -hmm. are kind of stronger than the reason or the logic, and that they draw us, you know, through our emotions. And and this would always be with sympathy with the characters, these Mm -hmm. wonderful stars that were the men and women that we're seeing on the screen. And so that was the really the heart of it is that in any story, no character would really get away with doing something evil with no consequence to it. Yeah. And that's not to say there weren't evil characters, but they met, they had, there was justice. They got what was coming to them in some way, shape or form. Yes. Yes. And I would say that that was the heart of it. In the sexual area, it was simply a matter of restraint. Mm -hmm. Uh, There were just things that you just did not see, but you saw people falling in love, things like that, but you you did not see specific physical types Mm -hmm. of things. Uh, Well, you didn't see the specific physical, like visual extremes that you obviously will see in movies today. Exactly. But you also had, there was also rules in place, I believe, that someone who was divorced in the movie could not get remarried. And there was, 
I there wasn't always about it wasn't only about the visual. It was also about what the storylines were causing people to be drawn towards. Yes, uh, that would be true. I know that some people have complained about the code that for situations like how you can't have a divorced person remarry, it sometimes just cuts away the drama because you know how the film's going to end. But I heard a really interesting one of my friends had an interesting take on that where she was saying that it actually in a sense, makes the movie more interesting because you know how it's going to end and you wonder how they're going to end up there. <laughs> like the Philadelphia story is one example where oh, the premise is yes. that Cary Grant comes back for his ex-wife's second marriage. And you know, if you know the code, you know that she's not going to end up, she's not going to end up marrying this other guy. So the question is, how is he going to win her back in these like two day time frame? But I, and it's oh, just, that's it's a such wonderful. a fun, yes. it's such a fun idea. You're watching it and you're like, well, this isn't, the second marriage isn't going to, happen. So how is all of these problems going to get solved? And I think that's just a different way of looking at art. It's not necessarily that you're leaving the audience in suspense of what's the end going to be. The audience knows what's the end is going to be. The suspense is how is it going to happen? And that's how life is sometimes. Like we know the end, we know that Christ wins. Right. How are we going to end up there? Right. Like that it's it's just a different way of looking at life. Well, I think that is absolutely marvelous. I had never really thought about that if, as the Philadelphia story because I never really thought of, of teaching with the Philadelphia story. Um, so that really does give a great example because what you're really saying is that in the natural law, most of us really believe and and long for men and women to be committed to one another mm -hmm. until death, right? Mm -hmm. That's deep in our hearts, isn't it, in the natural law? The idea of a committed love that does not get broken by divorce. Well, and Yeah. Oh, I know that you're the expert on movies here, but it's just interesting because the Philadelphia story is actually one that I love to watch for the lessons in it because it really delves into this idea of love versus worship. And you get the impression that when the two, when Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn were originally married, it was very much that she wanted to be worshipped and mm -hmm. she despised all of his weakness. And so the story as it unfolds in the events leading up to her, what's supposed to be her second wedding, which doesn't happen, she learns to realize that to be loved is to love the other person where they're at and help them grow together. And so it really wrestles with this idea of to love is to recognize the faults of the other person and love them still and help them rise, like help them work together, be a helpmate, be a companion, instead of just putting one person on the pedestal and expecting to be worshipped. That's absolutely marvelous. So that's, and, I and, love that and movie. And <laughs> the Philadelphia story is one of the greatest uh, and most loved stories, romantic stories in, in, the, in the golden age. So that's, that's a marvelous breakthrough there. When we were talking about this before the podcast, you had said something that I really liked, which was that aesthetic beauty, beauty, aesthetic beauty reveals the natural law. And I really love that kind of encapsulation of what we're saying, that these movies are aesthetically beautiful and they're reflecting true good and beauty and they're leading people and revealing to people who don't necessarily always know the faith, the beauty of the natural law. Absolutely. Can we start talking now about a few specifics about how what specific movies I know we, I had a few picked out that we could talk about. The first one that we had talked about talk first one we had talked about discussing was it happened one night, which was made in 1934, yes. which was the first year of the code. Yes. So what does this specific movie reveal about 
the relationships between men and women. What, what, what lessons would you, if in teaching this film, would you pull out for people? Well, I, I love to do a little thing that I came up with that I don't think I came up with. <laughs> I think it just was shown to me. And it was the puzzle pieces of, li- of love and life that I developed for b- both It Happened One Night and Love with the Proper Stranger. Uh, made 30 years apart, three decades apart. So what do we see in It Happened One Night, which we also see in Love with the Proper Stranger? We see relationships. We see um, we see a woman, a daughter, very, very unhappy with her life. And, and her dad is the only one in her family. I mean, she's an only child and she, and he's a widower. So you're just talking about a mother-daughter relationship. Father-daughter. I'm sorry, yeah. father-daughter, excuse me. Um, but it's so real and it's so absolutely central to the story. You can't imagine this story being told without the role that is played by uh, Claudette Colbert's character's dad in this film. Um, Now, Clark Gable doesn't have a family. You don't see his family, Mm -hmm. but you do see his work life. He's a reporter, and there's some important scenes um, there where Capra, Frank Capra, is showing the whole work life that he is part of. And there's a sense of accountability and relationship. These aren't just two people going out into an adventure and finding one another. They live in community. They live in family. They live in work relationships. Mm -hmm. So this is a very important part of the stories of the uh, classic era. What exactly is the premise of that movie for people who haven't seen it? So you have this girl who doesn't have a mother who lives with her father, and you have Clark Gable who is in this work community. What happens? Well, uh, it's very interesting. What happens is that she is just extremely foolish and wants so much to escape from this uh, stereotypical confined life of being a wealthy a daughter to this magnet, um, with this man with all this money, that she runs out and marries this guy in with a great impulsive sense. So it's really not very believable in a way. That's a part of it that is good with these comedies because you say, well, would anyone really, any woman as lovely as Claudette Colbert really go out and just marry this jerk? <laughs> So that's the part of it. This, this, we just kind of skip by that because nobody really wants him to be attractive because he's not Clark Gable and she's meant to be with him. But how do they do this? Well, she's running away from her father's pursuits to stop the marriage, you know, annul the marriage because it has already taken place. Okay. And so she's like what what they call in the in the previews a runaway heiress. So she's something you could never have today in today's social media <laughs> world. And I think that's really a kind of neat part of the story too, is that she can actually get away with this because it's nineteen thirty 
four. Mm -hmm. And so she gets um, on this bus, for example, and, and Clark Gable knows who she is. So he is pursuing her as a reporter. Ah. He wants to get the story and just advance his career. Mm-hmm. And so eventually they're kind of teaming up so that she can get back to her husband that she's just married. Mm-hmm. Um but has not been with. They haven't gone on a honeymoon or anything like oh, that. It's just so that's the, the grounds ser- for annulment. That's I believe, the grounds right? for the annulment, okay. right? And so the audiences of the day just know all this. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody is having to say, "Well, what's an annulment, or why would they be getting an?" I mean, it's just interesting how these kind of complex things of culture and society mm-hmm. are just talked about in a very you know just a routine way and understood in a normative sense that you just don't go out and get married to somebody you hardly know just to get back at your father you mm-hmm. just don't do that whether you're a millionaireess like Claudette Colbert or mm-hmm. a poor little gal down the street um, so the norms are really clear, and in a sense, uh, Clark Gable teaches her. He 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 gives her certain lessons in life that she really needs to learn, mm-hmm. um, and then she teaches him certain things too. Um, like what for both uh, sides? Uh, well, f- her. Um, I would say that the biggest lesson that she gives him, he's kind of a know-it-all really, um, is that your job is to really kind of look out for people that need help and not be so quick to just uh, pick up the next 50 bucks or something that you so he's kind of an opportunist Mm -hmm. and and for the first time in his life he's meeting somebody that really needs him maybe really needs his care and his sensibilities Mm -hmm. so it's kind of subtle really i think what because she doesn't want to acknowledge how much she really needs him to guide her and help her and protect her and um and so then the what frank capra does is have this visual thing of throwing the blanket over the uh the rope in the hotel room so the iconic scene i think what happens if i remember correctly i haven't actually seen the full movie but i'm familiar with the scene that they show up at the hotel and there's only one room left and so they have they have to like they have to spare they have to share the room for the night. And so right. Clark Gable, Gable hangs up the rope and then puts the blanket over it to separate mm-hmm. it so they each have their own privacy. And it's this iconic affirmation of chastity in a very humorous a- absolutely. way. Absolutely. And he calls them the walls of Jericho. <laughs> and and then um, Capra's brilliance as the director is that she comes around behind the blanket and and just stands there at an appropriate distance from him, from his head where he's resting. Mm-hmm. And she says, "Peter, I wanna, I wanna be with you. 
I want to be, she's not coming out and saying it, but she's saying, I want to marry you. I want to spend my life with you. Mm -hmm. So she's the one that actually speaks first. Mm. And when he hears her say that, he resolves that he will try to support her. So then he rushes back to where his work site and tells his boss at the newspaper office, um, I, want, I want this story. This story is going to establish me as a, you know, mm-hmm. a really whiz-bang reporter, so to speak. The story of finding the, the heiress. To- tori- story of finding okay. her, and she's going to marry me. Hmm. And uh, so, if she was already married, is the reason that they under the code they were able to get away with this is because the marriage they had never got on their honeymoon, so it was basically not a valid marriage. Correct. Okay. And everybody seemed to know this. Nobody questions it at all. Because mm-hmm. that happens a lot in the older movies where you have you think that this couple has gotten married and that the other romance that you're rooting for is over. And then you find out for some reason or other that someone has stopped the honeymoon from ever taking place. And so they're able to get it resolved without an issue. It's really true. That was, I guess, a very popular (laughs) way to do this. And everybody seemed to be half fine with it. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody just says, well, how stupid, you know, that that." no film critics that I ever read (laughs) of any, any, sensibility mm-hmm. either liberal or conservative would ball anybody out for uh, or put down the mm-hmm. filmmakers for coming up with this uh and that's the other part of this is that this went on for 30 years mm-hmm. and um even William Wyler who did this wonderful job directing Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck in Roman Holiday he did it again in 1967 with How to Steal a Million. I just love it because that was really the last romantic comedy and it has all the norms and mm-hmm. limitations uh, you know, uh, uh, of the code itself when the code was in tatters at that point. So it seems like if you're a young person or you're trying to show a young person a relationship by looking at um, It Happened One Night, you're yes. seeing a girl who was impulsive, who's doing things out of spite and getting into bad relationships without any thought. And so you see that that's not a good thing to do. You see that within a healthy relationship, there's going to be that back and forth. They're Give both going to help each other yes. grow in ways that they shouldn't grow. You're seeing chastity reaffirmed by having the bed sheet hung down the middle. And then you're also not normalizing divorce because in the, especially in the culture that you're watching that and people recognize that the first marriage done in haste with no real pre-cana prep and then also not having a honeymoon would have been easily annulled. And that's why she was able to end up with Clark Gable's Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So then how about Roman Holiday? We already mentioned that one. That was the next one that I had. That was from 1953. And obviously, I mean, if our listeners are familiar with it or not, it, the premise is that another runaway heiress, basically. Princess Anne, <laughs> played by Audrey Hepburn, gets yes. fed up with being a princess on tour and runs away <laughs> and meets Gregory Peck's character. And I believe before she left, the people that were in charge of the princess had given her basically a sleeping pill to help her sleep. And so mm-hmm. she is like acting drunk on the streets. So he takes her in so she won't be harmed by anybody. And she sleeps in his bed and he sleeps on the couch. Again, an affirmation of even though they're in the same room, 
it's a way that the old movies dealt with these situations by still affirming chastity. And Absolutely. They never, even married couples wouldn't sleep in the same bed and under the code. And in this situation, it's like she's in the bed, he's on the couch. And then he takes her all about Rome. And he's also a reporter trying to get a story. Yes. That's awesome. I, n- I never thought of that before, but those are two great films uh, to put together. I, mm-hmm. I think that's great. They yeah. both have a very similar plot. So then he takes her all around Rome and ends up falling in love with her and yes. she falls in love with him. Yes. What does that show us about relationships? Well, um, it's it's a very tough, you know, here we have the, uh, what do they call that? Uh, the spoiler report. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. Is that okay with you? That we, uh, Yeah. I mean, okay. Um, because people want to skip forward, they can. <laughs> the, uh, she has to grapple with who she is, and she's a princess, and uh, they do fall in love. So, um, I I guess it's it's just hard to say when if you have people haven't seen it. I can I can say from the testimonies that have been given by people, young people, high schoolers and college students that see it, um, it is a very elevating film. They, it's a beautiful. They do not wind up together in the end, mm-hmm. and yet their love is one of the most authentic love stories I think that was ever made. Um, and I guess I would say that what's also just so thrilling in this film is that all of the things lead up to the final scenes. Yes. And you just don't know that until there's no way, you know, this film until you know it. It seems how great it is that they both go, their character arcs are both helping them. Audrey Hepburn's character has to learn, again, grapple with who she is, but also recognize that she's worth being loved for who she is as a person and not just because she's a princess. And so there's that arc of her having to actually take on the role of being a princess for herself, being like, this is my duty to my family and to my country, and really step into that role in a way that she wasn't before, where she's like, I'm expected to go on tour and do all this, and I don't really want to be here. By having to make that sacrifice to give up the man she loves to be able to serve her country Mm -hmm. in that way, she really has to come into her own and accept that this family and this position that she's been born into is something that she needs to take on. It's a coming of age for her. Yes. And then yes. Gregory Peck basically learns how to love and learns not because originally he's trying to get a story. He's trying to get paid. He's trying. Mm-hmm. And then because he falls in love with her, he has to wrestle with, do I betray the woman that I love for the money mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. basically his climax that he has to wrestle with is what, at what point am I exploiting this woman? for the money, for the story that I've taken her all around Rome. I have a photo of her smoking a cigarette that would be great in those like magazines. Do I expose her in a sense in that way, her private life and all of her, everything she's been doing for the sake of the money, or do I give it all up for the sake of the woman I love and not have the fame, not have the money that comes with it and preserve her innocence in a sense? Not like that she did anything bad, Mm -hmm. but she definitely was behaving Mm -hmm. in such a way that would reflect badly on a princess in that she's running around exactly smoking like i said smoking cigarettes and just like being a girl but and not how reflective they, of her role as a exactly leader. and then how they are calling with each other in those final scenes mm-hmm. they are both whole persons completely in love with the other 
completely understanding each other and completely accepting of something they really can't change, Mm -hmm. but they are forever changed by the love that they have for one another. There's just never been any movie like this. Is there anything in that movie that stands out to you of the way that a man should treat a woman or a woman should treat a man? Mm. I feel like a lot of the old movies have that of like men holding the door for women or like not necessarily that men have to do that, but that it's a way of showing respect for the woman. Are there any moments that stand out to you in that film where Gregory Peck is showing respect for her as a woman or vice versa? Well, can you think of it? I can't right away (laughs) think. Yeah, I'm trying. I mean, I know that I guess I was thinking of the scene where he gives her the bed and like gives her the better. Like he could put her on the couch, but he gives her the bed and he takes the couch for her sake. Like he's so respectful of her in that scene. He has this drunk woman mm-hmm. that he's picked up off the streets and he could have done That's... anything to her. Yes. And he's such a gentleman that he treats her. He doesn't leave her on the street. He recognizes that that's not a good way to treat her. That's right. He takes her into his house to make sure that she's protected. And he doesn't want to. It's so clearly up to that, that he does not, he doesn't want to deal with this. He's really annoyed yeah. that he ran into this woman. He wants yeah. the taxi driver to take her somewhere. He doesn't want to deal with this problem. And Yet he is always incredibly respectful of her. He doesn't take advantage of her in any way, and that in a physical sense. And he takes her in. And then obviously he's once he finds out she's a princess, that's a different story. Well, what I find so remarkable about your just coming up with this as we're talking is that now the memory of this being a a pilot film and discussion in a detention home in Texas or a actually alternative school classroom. Mm-hmm. So these would be young men that were discipline problems and so forth in the regular classroom in the public school system down there in, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was Houston, Texas. Yes, it was my very dear friend who um, was working in that alt- those alternative schools and uh, uh, embarking on different movies that we were working with. But he, he didn't have a lot, but he did have some. And one of them was Roman Holiday. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that chose it. And then he gave these young men a chance to write about the movie. And this young man, who was about 15 years old in this alternative classroom, school classroom said, I want to be like Joe Bradley. Which is Gregory Peck's character. Which is Gregory Peck's character. And he said, I want to show respect for women. Actually wrote those words. Wow. And he said, I want to protect women. And this was like the detention home experience with It's a Wonderful Life. This didn't happen under my watch, but it happened with a friend as far away as Houston, Texas, who embarked on this. And when I saw that, and there were about three different responses, but the ability of this young man to express himself that way, Mm -hmm. to say, I want to protect women. That spoke to me as something God plants in the hearts of men. Mm -hmm. 
that our culture today is just almost ripping out of them. Even, yeah, the culture today just doesn't even give them the opportunities to see that in movies. You don't see those examples of men treating women in, like, women who basically appear drunk on the street. Like, you know that she had the sleeping pill, but she's acting for all intents and purposes, like, doesn't have control of her faculties. And he steps up and takes care of her and is there for her yes. in a way. And you don't even see that modeled in the culture. From And I can't think of any modern movies right now that model that, except for maybe something like Lord of the Rings or these movies that are based on works of literature where you have characters that do that. You're not seeing it in just like the Barbie movies no. that come out of Hollywood. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. <laughs> Actually, I haven't and, seen Barbie, so I can't say that. But from what I've heard, that's not how the men are portrayed. this is also a part of the art. Some of them had it more than others. And two of the directors that absolutely had this ability, this genius, were Frank Capra mm -hmm. and William Wyler, who did The Best Years of Our Lives, also did Roman Holiday, mm. and did a directed Audrey and Peter O'Toole in How to Steal a Million. That's a fun movie. So he really had great gifts of being able to show... Um, I call it classic realism, where we say this is what human nature really is, mm. what it can be, warts and all, so to speak. And in a certain way, it was required by the production code that if it was going to go off too much, it had to get back to something like a classic realism. It doesn't mean there weren't quite a few romances that are just people just going along and meeting people and they go along or there's a murder and they solve it or something mm -hmm. like that. But those movies, although people like them and enjoy seeing them on a rainy Saturday afternoon, they're not going to call in to or uh, write into Turner Classic Movies and tell them that they cry every time. <laughs> and that's really what it is. It's like the the great movies like Roman Holiday and It's a Wonderful Life and It Happened One Night, these others that we've talked about and many more that we have in our study guides, mm -hmm. um, you just laugh and you cry and you never forget them and you want to share them with your people you love. It seems like that's a good point to make that not every movie made under the code is this great movie pointing people towards heaven. There's a exactly. lot of candy movies, but those candy movies aren't showing anything bad. They're no. still preserving the these social norms and relationships yes. that men and women shouldn't use each other. But you're also, it created this environment where these truly great films could be made and appreciated and loved. And so it just, it helped you you have to have the fun escapism movies for people to watch on the rainy Saturday afternoons to just get through life, especially because a lot of these movies are being made during the Depression, during the war, and then after the war. It was a hard time for America. So you needed just to have those fun. Absolutely. But then you're also creating this environment where these great classic films can help draw people towards heaven, in a sense, and create, again, this culture where marriage and family mm -hmm. and life is all appreciated and loved and mm -hmm. welcomed and embraced. And it's a visual way to guide people to that. And it, it's really wonderful. One of the things I've so enjoyed is reading the biographies and autobiographies of the great directors like George Stevens mm -hmm. did Shane, 
um, and uh, William Wyler and F Frank Capra and others uh, because uh, there's something so kind of mysterious, but yet from God, how God does inspire certain people, talented people, mm -hmm. to create beautiful things mm -hmm. for souls in this world today. It's just, it's just the most wonderful thing to think of. They don't, don't just come up with this by themselves. No, it's true <laughs> art. And it's like all truth, goodness, and beauty is rooted in yes, God. Yes, it's rooted in God. And that's, that's, that's what can keep us going in a very dark time. That God did do this. He did give us this over the over the centuries. He gave us Socrates. He gave us Aristotle. Um, On the art side, he gave us Michelangelo and Raphael exactly. and all of these artists that this that they do religious art, but just all of these artists that even whether or not what they're showing is religious or not is still leading us towards him because mm -hmm. it's ordered towards goodness and beauty yes. and truth. Yes. So another one that I know you, another movie you, I believe it's one of your favorites, is It's a Wonderful Life from 1945. Oh, yes. 1946. What, 46. I yes. had the wrong year. Okay. That's all right. <laughs> um, what does It's a Wonderful Life show us about relationships? Well. And let's give a little summary. I think most of our audiences or listeners have probably seen it, but maybe just like quick recap for them if they haven't seen it. Well, it, it, it's a, a really a story of a community. I like to think it's, yes, it's one person's story. George Bailey, who uh, is, is just struggling all the time uh, to get out of Bedford Falls and uh, <laughs> never do, does um, by things he can't control. And, uh, uh, yet the real story there is just of what makes what makes us able to live with each other in community and in society, mm -hmm. and uh, that's what that wonderful movie teaches. Mm -hmm. And so I always get excited when I see all the wonderful characters that Frank Capra. <laughs> put in that movie uh, or directed those wonderful actors and actresses uh, uh, to create those roles that all together helped Jimmy Stewart to, as George Bailey to know that he truly did have a wonderful life. And mm -hmm. so it's a remarkable... Um, so basically for our listeners, he's going through life and he keeps wanting to leave this town and things keep coming <laughs> up where like, at one point, I believe the great depression, like the crash happens. So he can't afford to leave because he has to stay and help the business and all of these things keep happening and he's just miserable. He's just like, I'm not living the life I want to. I'm not going yes. on the adventures that yeah. I want to marries this wonderful woman. Um, and then ends up with this gentleman, Clarence, who comes into his life as Jimmy Stewart is at this point contemplating suicide yes and clarence shows up and basically shows him what life would look like if he hadn't existed yes. so that's yes. a quick recap for people that haven't yes. seen it and he thank comes, you colleen he comes to realize that <laughs> his life has impacted so many people i love george and mary's relationship in that movie him george bailey jimmy stewart's character and his wife can you would you use that as a model for someone for a healthy marriage because i think that She's his support all the way through it. She's there for her husband when he's going through a lot. And I think there's something really, and he's 
obviously in love with her, but doesn't always appreciate her and comes yes. back around to realizing that. Well, I do think that it's a wonderful movie to show in season and out of season because uh, Mary, uh, it, her, the character of Mary, Donna Reed's Mary, is really central to the whole film as far as I'm concerned. She, she has uh, tremendous sensibilities of... Uh, what to do in a crisis, and and in many ways, when the crisis happens, it's Mary who goes out and does. She's the one that goes out and tells people mm -hmm. what's happened and gives them that opportunity to give back to George. He's kind of exhausted and just doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, I just think that I, I look back and I remember my wonderful husband, Bill, we had 48 years together. And there was so many times when he just stabilized me and helped me to kind of come to grips with whatever we were uh, coming up against. And then there's other times when I was doing that for him. Mm -hmm. So that's what a, a truly happy marriage can be mm -hmm. uh, for two people. And, um, and so I did experience that myself in my own life uh, with Bill. And, um, and I just think that no matter who you are or how, what you've experienced in life, um, you recognize these two. Uh, as having a truly complementary a marriage of complementarity, almost a, a prototype of what John Paul II was talking about mm -hmm. for a marriage. And I think it's so important that that movie shows the marriage. So many rom-coms and romantic movies show the relationship leading up and it, it culminates in a marriage. But that's the beginning of what people need to have modeled for them a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And this shows Jimmy Stewart going through a really rough time where their marriage is probably in a very dry spot and she's there for him and they're committed to each other. And yes. it shows how to work through the ups and downs of life together as a team, even when he's at a very low point in his life, yeah. she's still there for him. And yeah, looking he's, out for him. he's not exactly Mr. Team Player when he... <laughs> Uh, grabs the telephone and tells uh, Zuzu's teacher that, or uh, the husband of Zuzu's teacher that, you know, he he's ready to come out and punch him out anytime <laughs> he wants. So, yeah, it's, uh, and yet how quickly Donna Reed's uh, Mary says, um, okay, you guys, she says to the kids and they say, are we supposed to pray now, Mom? Yes, pray very hard, and let's get going. Let's. They go right into being a team right away to help Dad. Mm -hmm. And it's very natural. It's very natural. It's not like it's just all of a sudden we're going to be a team. Yeah, it's that's what they had that's from the beginning, how they and were. he's kind yes. of off the rails right now, but she's yes. still looking out for him Yes, and not just giving up on him and saying, well, he's going through a like." going through something and I can't be there for him. So now the last one I wanted to talk about was love with a proper stranger, which I've never seen. So you're going to have to tell me a little bit about oh. that movie. And I know that when we were talking before this, you described a really 
really you described very beautifully the scene where one of the main characters goes to get an abortion. And I think that was really interesting because, like I said, I've never seen it. I'd never didn't realize that abortions are being portrayed in movies at this point. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was made in 1963. Is that yes, correct? it was. It was so 1963. Right before the sexual revolution. Like, yes. As that tension is happening. Yes. So can yes. you tell us about that movie and why it's important, what it shows? It's one of the most important films ever. And it can be taught uh, uh, high school, college. Uh, this is this is absolutely. If you put these different films together, it happened one night. Roman Holiday, um, Love with the Proper Stranger, and It's a Wonderful Life. What a great uh, quartet of great films, and. This film is with Natalie Wood and Steve McQueen. Its director isn't particularly well-known one way or the other. He was respected, but it was past the point where it was the studio system was in full bloom and everybody was rolling along. It was, it was a few years after the studio system and was pretty well gone down. Was the code in place at this point, or is this as the code is fizzling? The code is fizzling, fizzling, fizzling. And so what is in there um, is a tremendous grace, if you think of the story and how this is this is portrayed with such organic integrity. What happens? What is so that? I don't she, know the story at all. She comes to him. He's a musician. And it's in New York City is the setting. And she comes and approaches him. And they have had a one-night stand Mm -hmm. up in the Berkshires or someplace like that where young people hang out. Mm -hmm. And she tells him she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. That's how the movie begins. Okay, interesting. So, boy, you're right from the very beginning. So, in any case... um, they start talking eventually, um, pretty soon in the film. They get to know one another as people in a particularly poignant scene where she has met his family. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that her, her parents would love it if perhaps they did get together Um but they have they are coming there together to talk because they have are planning for her to have an abortion her and the boyfriend and, not even and boyfriend. Steve McQueen okay. is the father of the child okay so the two of them are planning to get the abortion yes. or her family wants her yes, to get the abortion yes the, the family doesn't know anything oh okay and she is seen as a catholic young woman who has these brothers who are very much wanting her to get married and settle down. Mm -hmm. They have no idea either. And her mother is one of those kind of stereotyped uh, Catholic mothers that just wants everything to go right and and everything. So her family is seen as kind of hapless Mm -hmm. characters. Um, And so is his family. So that is a sense the more modern cast of the film that is portraying Catholics. Well, the the family is just kind of clueless and uh, they don't, they don't exactly contribute, 
you know, a whole lot, except that they're loving. They are loving and all. But there, it is a more modern film in the sense that this is all up to them. This is, mm. this is uh, Steve McQueen and Natalie Wood's characters really wrestling with what the heck they're going to do. So unlike the um, other movies we've been talking about where the characters are within this community of relationships yes, that are deep, helping form them. deep inside. This is just taking them out of that context and it's just the two of them. It, it is it. pretty much the two of them. And I think that's what makes the decisions that they make so compelling. Again, really compelling. I mean, it's clear they love their family, mm-hmm. but it has already gone in American culture. This is 1963. Mm-hmm. And so there's this greater individualism and so forth. It's already taken hold. Mm-hmm. through the late 50s and, and so on. But at the same time, what you see here is incredibly strong in the natural law because when they make this decision, then they're going up the stairs in this very sleazy building. And then she goes into the room first and you don't see her, but she She basically is told to take off her dress and she's in her slip. And then Steve McQueen is outside the room and there's something that's just in him to go into that room. He just cannot stay outside the room. I'm thinking about Gregory Peck's character in Roman Holiday that we talked about that. God has given two men this incredible, strong, protective quality, wanting to protect and provide. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, so Steve McQueen's character goes through the door and he sees this wretched, sleazy-looking woman kneeling down with these uh, paraphernalia It's kind of vague, and there's a blanket there on the floor. But it's in this sleazy room, and he just, and he sees the woman that he's the father of her child right there in that room. So he just puts his hand up in this way that says, stop. And this is Steve McQueen. Those of us that are Steve McQueen fans, I'm one of them. Um, And a lot of his movies, he was a cad who exploited women. I mean, because he he was popular through the 60s uh, and into the 70s um, when the sexual revolution was in full force. Mm -hmm. But in this film, He is a classic, traditional man Mm -hmm. protecting the woman he loves and their unborn child. And he puts his hand up, and you know, the audience knows there will be no abortion here. And the abortion scene is shown as evil and sleazy. Mm -hmm. And then he... uh, Natalie gets dressed and they go and the next scene you see them in the cab mm-hmm. and it's really the climax of the film. I mean there's still things that go on after that, but that's really 
the heart of the film because they're riding in this cab and he has his arm around her and he's protecting her and she's recovering from the trauma of this. And ultimately, the, uh, he courts her the way that a woman wants to be courted. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's wonderful humorous scenes with uh, Natalie going to going out to lunch with uh, the guy that she thinks should be her <laughs> husband, you know, under this situation because she's mm-hmm. trying very hard to find a husband now to take care of her and her child. Um, so that man turns out to be Steve McQueen in the end. and uh, Not the guy she's going out with, the guy that, the father of her child, she ends up marrying him. Yes, Steve he, he comes and he courts her in public. And that's another part of this lovely film is that he's got a banjo and um, he's uh, singing right down on the busy New York Street. Uh, I think it's got to be Fifth Avenue. I'm not sure. So it's very unrealistic. But at the same time, it's very, uh, I don't know. It's kind of like the timeless struggle of men and women to find each other and commit for life. I think it's interesting you're talking about the courtship too, because it's not the original one night stand. Like that does bring them together in that there is a child that then they have to reconnect with each other to take care of the child, but that there's also this element of chastity, that there has to be this actual wooing of the woman for everything she is and not just, I want her body. And there's a beauty there that not only is there an affirmation of life and affirmation, affirmation of protecting his, this woman and their child, but also this idea that he has to actually win her heart. It's not just that he yes, gets control over her body. Exactly. You say it so well. <laughs> and you haven't even seen this beautiful <laughs> film. Oh, my goodness. It's uh, it's very thrilling when it, you see what was possible in 1963. It makes me think, actually, of some of the mission stories we see here of couples where you have that they've, like, and their boyfriend, they're dating, the girl gets pregnant, and we go in, uh, our missionaries go in and help them like tr- help the woman choose life but there's always chastity education too and this recognition that you need to live chastely and you need to like the you need to have save that for marriage and helping them choose life in that moment even though mistakes have been made but then exactly. also going forward you need to change how you're living your life to be a reflection of God's plan for sexuality and it sounds like this film is basically stirring the audience's emotions to recognize that and that's something that going back to what we were saying earlier about how the production code said that the audience's feelings can't be swayed towards something that's sinful. It's so important because modern movies often try to sway emotions towards these sinful things. And it's this recognition that emotions, the role of media and movies can make the audience members feel certain things, even if it's something that they might mentally be opposed to. Like you could have a movie that emotionally makes you want the divorced couple to get like a divorced woman to end up with a divorced man or something like that. It's going to cause you to emotionally want that. And that's a bad thing. And so if movies can draw you to emotionally root for sin, we have to make sure that they're not doing that and show, like watch and feed our own imaginations with movies that are going to emotionally move us towards something greater and beautiful. That's going to reflect God, reflect God's plan for sexuality. That's so, so, so beautifully said. And that's, that's exactly 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people can sometimes disagree about whether a movie even made under in the production code era, well, this seems to do this or that. Uh, but in the end, these movies that where it comes out right from the natural law, mm-hmm. like Love with the Proper Stranger, mm-hmm. you are elevated. And uh, just recently, as a contrast, two years later, there was this silly movie called Sex and the Single Girl that was done with Natalie Wood as the oh, leading wow. lady, Tony Curtis as the leading man, mm-hmm. Lauren Bacall and Henry Fonda are even in there as the supporting couple. Mm-hmm. So they had a lot of things going for them. And this is 1965. And the movie is just lacking in any kind of elevation Mm-hmm. or good characterizations, and it trivializes terribly mm-hmm. um, the love between the man and the woman. And it just manages to have this just be a kind of interchangeable commodity. Sex is kind of an mm-hmm. interchangeable commodity, even though the movie doesn't really explicitly have these people in these situations. Mm-hmm. It, it still is trivializing marriage and trivializing sex in a way that a, quite a few of those movies did in that time where the norms were still pretty strong, mm-hmm. but the cultural strength of the norms and the protection of the code were not there at that point. Yeah, and I think that the classic films are somewhat are unique because they're beautiful aesthetically. The director and, like you said, the code, all of that is guiding the story to it at least be neutral, if not uplifting. Like, it's not going to be leading people into sin. It might be fun candy, but it's the ones that are uplifting. They're created in this environment where the supporting characters, the culture of the time, the storyline, the way that they're filmed, the visual elements that are used, all of it has the ability and the power to uphold it and create that the great films of that era are going to be more great than possibly later films versus like a great film from like the seventies might be better. There might be films there that are better than like the candy movies of the thirties, but the great films of like the forties are going to be Particularly excellent. It's just as it's just so well stated that you do there, and that is why all the film critics agree with you, all the fans agree with you, all the stars that themselves made these movies agree with you, mm-hmm. and all the directors agree with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, there isn't anybody that really can make the ca- other case. Yeah. They're not there because the, the the there just is nothing like these mm-hmm. these great films. And it uh, seems like the study guides you put together basically are giving young people the key to being yes. able to visually and feed the imagination and be able to yes. begin to absorb this culture where life and family and God's plan for marriage and sexuality is all upheld and presented in a beautiful way. And that seems to me to be like what your program basically does, which is so important for today's day and age where you don't see it reflected in society. And that, uh, thank you for that, Colleen, because 
that put into words is what I saw with this group of high schoolers that had the films over a period of time. Mm -hmm. They came to understand and appreciate and really know this culture Mm -hmm. that was a culture of life from the mid-30s to the early 60s and Mm mid-60s. It was a culture of life. Yeah, sure, we had problems. We had other things. But what is a culture? A culture is a way of life of a people. Mm-hmm. And we we are a people. And we have a common home. We have a common language. We have all these things. But our culture today is deep and darkly fragmented and challenged mm-hmm. at all these levels. And... So within this, uh, I'm just the voice of a gift. I just represent a gift. And it's uh, it's like I can be a sales lady for a product that is what we all have for 30 years and plus going beyond that. Well, thank you for everything you're doing. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. I've really, I've really <laughs> enjoyed this conversation. If you can't tell, I love classic films. So I think they're so... They're just such a moving way to stir people's hearts to love what is true, good, and beautiful when they're exactly. done when they're done well. Exactly right. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you. And to all of our listeners, please like, subscribe, share this with your friends. If you're following on our audio platforms, please leave us a review. Uh, check out the new ebooks that we have coming out, and keep on living the culture of life. God bless. <laughs>